0: Vanity, vanity, vanity. What's this book about? You know what? As we look through this text in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's trying to break the curse of the vanities of vanities, the havel or the meaninglessness of life. It's trying to cleanse us and to heal us. Last week, we did the first two chapters. Chapter three, we're going to skip, but it has some timeless writing, some great poetry because this is in the wisdom poetry section. It says there's a time for everything, a time to cry and a time to grieve, but there's time to laugh and there's a time to dance. It talks about having a time to tear down and it feels like God has torn down the church. But then it says there's a time to build up and he's rebuilding the church in a way that is amazing and transformative. There's a time to hate and there's a time to love. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. And then at the last it says there's a time for war and a time for peace. And it seems like as we've come up on a year of being away as a church that we've been at war but always there's a time of great peace after the great battle. And I believe there's a time of peace coming after the war. And as we continue into chapter 4, he tells us more about life under the sun so that we can learn and grow. And at the very end of today's message, he gives us three words. Be on the lookout for those words about life under the sun. So let's open up to Ecclesiastes 4 today and let's read And really ask God to speak to us as we go through this crazy text. How often do churches preach out of Ecclesiastes? Not very much. So let's read and see what God has for us today. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless let's pray father we love you we thank you for these words these strange powerful weird words in the middle of the bible in this hebrew poetry wisdom section lord use this time use these words use this collective sermon series to help us learn about life under the sun life apart from you Father, we claim you as Lord and ask that you move our congregation and prepare our hearts as we move closer to Easter and watch God rebuild us for the betterment of the kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we praise you above all things. Amen. So we dig in. Verse one talks about the the compassion for the oppressed. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are constantly oppressed. From uh, Exodus and and um, and Numbers, we see all this oppression coming out of Egypt. But all throughout the Old Testament, Proverbs and Psalm have things about the oppressed people. How about the three majors? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah talk about the oppressed. Small prophets, Hosea, Zechariah, they're talking about the oppressed. And in Deuteronomy, in the, in the Torah section, we still see even more about the oppressed with those two books, Exodus and Numbers. There's so much communication in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about the oppressed. And we need to understand the compassion for those that are being oppressed. People are constantly oppressed in society today and have been in what we call eternity past or in the ancient world, people are oppressed by kings and governments, servants are oppressed by masters, workers oppressed by uh, bosses, the poor are constantly oppressed by the rich, and it goes on and goes on. There's just constant oppression. The idea of oppression is there. The, the the oppressor is wielding power over the less than to accomplish something for themselves. They're using people to get to a better place. That's what oppression is. And this world is oppressed by a darkness, the evil one. Let's continue, verse two. It says, so I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. What? Wow. But most fortunate of all of the, are those who are unborn. This is some weird text. For they have not seen all the evil that is undone under the sun. So the author is giving us an idea of Solomon and all of his wisdom and in his life. And he's reporting this interesting thing. The oppressed and the saddened are better off dead. What? The idea of this is they're better off dead Under the sun, under the sun is a life with no God. If you can just die and end your life early, your life is better off when there is no God. Yikes. But it even says something even harsher. It says, and the unborn are the most favored. You're better off not even being born. This world, if you remember in verse uh, chapter one, has been dealt a tragic existence. A tragic existence in this world is that there's so much of meaninglessness of life under the sun, a life without God, that it's better off not to be born. Jesus in Matthew 26 says the same exact thing about Judas, the one that betrayed him. He says after Judas has sold Jesus out, he says it's better off, Judas Judas would be better off never to be born. He's kind of going back to this wisdom literature section in Ecclesiastes in these first three verses we're talking about the oppressed the injustice and it shows us a couple of things number one the need for a judgment day who wants to be judged but when there's oppressors and everybody or a lot of people are being oppressed, we want judgment it shows us that there's a need for a judgment day it also shows us then we are in a need for a savior and even better that Life on earth is not really a permanent place. There's a better place, and it shows us a need for an eternal life, a better life than this life when it all seems meaningless. Let's continue on in verse 4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Fools fold their hands, their, fold their idle hands, and lead them to ruin. And yet, verse 6, better to have one hand full of quietness than two full with hard work chasing the wind. It's all Havel. Remember last week that Hebrew word Havel, and it means vapor mist. Life is just like a mist, and it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And here's what it says in this small area. And this area's gonna got some proverbial wisdom proverb wisdom that we see in proverbs 6 10 it says this it says success motivated motivated by others is hated and envied that's no way of life that shows us this vain and empty system in this world this world is controlled by the evil one darkness and it's got this vain empty system that really has no meaning and then he brings these great proverb type quotes. He says, hard work and success are good, but they're not to be envied. Laziness is destructive. That's something we all need to hear. We all have those lazy moments and laziness is destruction, destructive. And finally, he says, hands that are full must learn to be content. It's good to be busy and work hard, but if they're full and busy constantly, you need to learn content. Less is more in this concept. Let's talk about the advantages of companionship. Do you have companionship in your life? As we've gone through this pandemic, we're literally a year into this. And some people are lonelier than ever. Even people with family. I know that my father-in-law has talked about this last year of being one of the loneliest years of his life, even though he lives in a, a place right next door to us. It's creating a lot of loneliness. Here we see the advantages of companionship verse 7 I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun This is the case of a man who is alone without a child or brother yet who works hard to gain much wealth as much wealth as he can but then he asks himself who am I working for and why am I giving up so much pleasure now It's also meaningless and here's the other word and depressing it's meaningless and depressing what is success if you can't pass it on the author gives us this story to tell about this man who's earning a great a great vast amount of wealth but he's passing up pleasure and relationships and fellowship and he doesn't really have someone to inherit and pass on all that he has and at some point Someone else is going to control all of his wealth when he dies, either the government or someone he doesn't know or someone he barely knows. This is an unexamined lifestyle. He's talking about companionship. This man doesn't count the cost of what life is really going to be about. It's unexamined and it's unfruitful. All this hard work and having no family, no heir to give it to really is vanity of vanities. It's meaningless. It's got no purpose. You know, you see in, in Genesis chapter three or Genesis chapter two, I'm sorry. It says life is not meant to be alone. And I know that's kind of the marriage verse, but it's really meant to be for all of us. Christianity and life in itself is not meant to be alone. We, we don't do well alone. We're not to be hermits and take our Bible and live quietly by ourselves. We need other people to help shape us and grow us you remember at one point in the message last week how the bible is very simple and it says love god and love others the other part is the companion part trust and obey very simple message loving god super critical but we also need to learn to love others it's good to have companionship And the next few verses, this is my favorite part of the text. The author of Ecclesiastes is trying to say being alone makes life worse. And he's trying to develop the idea so that you and I have a better understanding. And it's not just marriage. It's also friendship and, and discipleship and accountability partners. But here's what it says. Two are better off than one for they cannot help each other, for they can help each other succeed. Verse 10, if one falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone who falls alone is in real trouble, this is interesting. That one can pick each other, somebody up when they fall. By themselves, you can't pick up yourself, especially if you're older. We have those little watches and button today. I'm falling and I can't get up. That's exactly what the Bible says. Verse 11, likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. That's kind of a, fun concept but how can one be warm alone now this is interesting to me obviously as a couple we snuggle and want to keep warm and 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 it makes life better but this is also in a place of survival if you've seen some of those survival shows a lot of times people that aren't in a relationship uh, and aren't necessarily interested in each other have snuggled together and kept warm just to stay alive this is good wisdom verse 12 A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. I always want to win. I've got that chip on my shoulder, but I know that I need other people in my life to truly win the right way. And here's the best part of the verse. Three are even better a triple braided cord is not easily broken now this to me is the representation of god not just another person the triune god builds and 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 brings everything together in the love chapter it says love binds everything together. And I really believe that's what God is saying. In a marriage, the third person of God and and the spirit and the son help marriage stay strong and together. In friendships, best friends, if God is strong, it can be amazing. I have some friends that uh, have had the same person in their life for 40 or 50 years. And it's amazing to see the fruitfulness of two people uh, bonded together with God in the middle. This is talking about a lot more than just marriage. Two people can help succeed. Two people can help rise. Two people can help stay warm. Two people can help in battle. And three, that third being with God. It's almost unbreakable when God is a part of that union. Let's talk about verse 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is so countercultural today. This is so anti-Ventura County right now. And the title of this section, and I'm, oh, I'm going to ruffle some feathers, is called The Futility of Politics. We have been hearing the last four or five months, if you don't preach politics, you're actually missing out on the gospel message. And the truth is, if you don't look at the Bible and you open it up to a book like this and other books in the New Testament, you're missing out on the gospel message. The futility, the uselessness or the less, uh, the, the, the uh, meaninglessness of politics is not that important. Over time, the gospel message will rise. Good leaders read out of the Bible and live out of the Bible and not out of opinions and preferences. Trust me, I got a lot of them. But I, I, I let the word use uh, be more evident in my life and less of my own opinions and preferences, especially as I get older. And I learned that 10 or 12 years ago, and it's now just starting to play out. Here's what it says. It's better to be a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who refuses all advice such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed he he might even become king even though he has been in prison yeah for prison but then everyone rushes to the side of the another youth who replaces him endless crowds stand around him but then another generation grows up and rejects him it's all so meaningless it's like chasing the wind This story is interesting. It actually is translated in a choppy manner. It doesn't have that kind of storytelling mindset. It actually needs to be corrected. Let me tell it in a different way. A young man was born without wealth. He spent time in prison. Unexpectedly, he rises to power. As a young king, he listens and rules well. But in his old age, he becomes very proud. And losing his throne to a younger man because of that pride. But as but this time the kingdom was very large and powerful, and Solomon, in his glory, forecasts this story and says the new king's fame will not last long either. He too can expect he'd lose his office. He too will can expect that those that used to cheer him will no longer appreciate him. The overall meaning in these few verses says this it's a warning about pride pride and politics go hand in hand and that's why we need to stay away from that especially as we open up and are trying to lead the church into a healthier place it's also a warning of instability of politics and the fickleness of popularity the point is of these verses that history repeats itself the young over time grow old and are ultimately replaced or removed Here's a quote that I got. One man's hero soon becomes tomorrow's villain or victim. There's this idea today that's called the cancel culture. Be careful of that culture because one day they'll raise you up and the next day they'll cast you aside. Social media could be a really great tool, but it can also hurt innocent people. You know, a, a kind of a weird story. There used to be a pastor that a bunch of us used to follow. He was up in Washington and Seattle and Portland. And he had all these churches, and he blew up overnight, one of the greatest pastors in this area. But about six or eight years later, the same people that elevated him on social media protested, and now he's trying to rejuvenate his ministry after he's been taken out of leadership. Be careful about the cancel culture. It doesn't take long to look around and say, isn't something off? It's not supposed to be this way, right? Isn't there issues with the world and how it's constructed? When God created the world and everything in it, wasn't it supposed to be good? That's what it said. But what happened? Well, sin enters the world and everything then begins to disintegrate the world starts to fall apart because of this evil presence over us because of the curse of sin. But as Christians have what we have different than the world, we have hope through salvation. And that salvation is through Jesus Christ. And we're left the Holy Spirit to grow in our salvation so that we can understand all that God has for us. There's this beautiful story in Romans chapter 19 to 23 that tells us about creation's moaning and groaning under the weight of sin. Sin has its its pressures on us. And as Christians and as the world is moaning and groaning, the only thing that can help us is Jesus Christ and the glory bringing us to the glorious Father and the Holy Spirit bringing us to the Father's heart here's what it says and i'm going to digress for a second i'm not going to talk a lot about it i just want to show you how this works so that it can bring us to a good close at the end of this message romans 8 one of the great areas in the bible this particular chapter probably has some of the favorite verses of many of us who read And here's one of those sections that really help us understand hope and salvation and and how sin weighs us down. It says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will, will reveal who his children is. One day, everyone will know who is a child of God. That's a beautiful day. And those that love Jesus can't wait for that day. Against its will, all creation will be subjected to God's curse. But with an eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in its glorious freedom from death and decay. This world, all it brings us is death and decay. Verse 22, we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right now up to the present time. This world without God, without a relationship with Christ, It's moaning and groaning. It's about death and decay. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us that gives us a foretaste of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. The Holy Spirit's job is to give us a taste of what it will be like in heaven. Have you ever been to a night of worship or a, a, a service or a Bible study and all of a sudden the Spirit of God's there and you just feel the tingling and the glory of God? That's a foretaste. And the Holy Spirit is trying to show you this is what life is going to be like all the days of your life in eternity. We too will wait for this eager hope for the day When God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new the new bodies that he's promised us. One day, all this will be over for a believer. That's the hope of salvation. We're going to be full children adopted and right with God. But beyond that, we're going to get rid of this earthly body that's just about death and decay, and we're going to receive this new body that will really transport us into eternity with God forever. What a glorious day. And just like Ecclesiastes, it paints a very interesting picture to contemplate. I'd ask you to go and relook at, in, uh, re-look at this verse in your translation and read it and see what it's saying to you. I think it gives us a good picture and it kind of allows us to conclude as we go to the next chapter, chapter five, the author wants us to approach God with care. So let's do that and and use these last few verses to kind of bring this to a close. Here's what it says. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It is evil to make mindless offerings to God. As we are approaching God with care, it's, it's useless to do mindless things to offer that to God. It's useless. Here's what we're supposed to do is keep our ears open and our mouths shut. I was always told, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. And that's what we're supposed to do as we enter God. In this section, maybe you, maybe you see here in your translation, it says two here. In the Hebrew here, it actually has this two here and it's a double force. It has two meanings or it has a split meaning. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It, uh, it really means to pay attention and obey. Get those ears unclogged. Shut your mouth. Get rid of your opinions and preferences and just come before God. McLaren, who's a theologist, he loves to write modern day uh, uh, commentary. He says this, he says, as you come to the house of the Lord, our job is to listen and obey, not to talk. He also says, and if there really is no eternal life, it's still wise for you to honor God because your life is better. Now, where do we see this? You know where I see this in my life? You know, I'm in recovery and I've been in recovery for many years and in AA and NA and Al-Anon and all these other 12 step recovery processes, they teach about this God as we understand him. And I don't know if we ever understand him. And I think they miss the concept of God, but really what they do is teach these God principles and promises and all these people start living God's promises, but they don't actually get to live in the promises But their life does get better. If you just live like God wants you to live, your life will get better. But if you're going to live like that, you might as well receive what God has, which is his son, so that you can live all the promises on earth and get the future blessings as well. Here's what verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few, highlight, circle. Too much activity gives you restless dreams and too many words make you a fool. That's pretty harsh here about the words. Many times when we come before God, our minds are full of busyness. When we come before God, have you ever come to church or Bible study or kind of open up your Bible and the devotion and your mind is just racing? You're not in that place of worship or receiving or in a place of glory to God. You're in a place in your head. You're, you're, you're talking too much. You're thinking too much. And, and your mind is not connected. And you can't really hear God. And that's why I believe most of us don't hear the voice of God. Because we're busy, especially in Southern California. Too much talk, the Bible says, leads us to trouble especially when you're trying to build your relationship with God and hear the voice of God and read the word of God and make it part of who you are. Let me give you an example in the Bible that kind of shows this. There's this great place in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's one of my favorite places in in, uh, 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 Israel. We go up to Mount Carmel because there's this great battle with 450 prophets and one prophet of god named elijah and elijah says i'll go against your 450 guys and we'll see who can bring fire from their gods down on this altar and here's what happens these 450 prophets of god for eight hours dance scream shout mutilate their bodies cut themselves and and really kind of do as much as they can to kind of rouse their god his name's Baal, and after eight hours nothing And you know what Elijah does? Elijah makes it impossible for man to light this fire. He soaks the altar and he makes sure that only God can do it. And with just a few words, a simple prayer, the fire from heaven comes down and lights up the altar and everyone bows down. It shows sometimes too much talk and too much shouting and dancing is not really for the glory of God. Sometimes it's simple and quiet. Over communication muddles and dilutes the message, and it's easily ignored. Have you, do you know someone, or are you one of those people that sends a lot of texts or emails or over communicates, and all of a sudden nobody really pays attention? It's telling us that too much of that kind of dilutes or changes the message, and it makes it easy to ignore. The flip side is my side. I kind of under communicate, and my plight is to make sure that my concise communication is completely communicated correctly. A lot of times I undercommunicate and I miss the essence of what I'm trying to say and that hurts too. Lord, help us find that middle ground. Verses four, five, and six. Here's what it says. Keep your vows. This might be the most important part of the message. It says this, verse four. When you make your promise to God, don't delay in following through. Man, you got to highlight that word, don't delay. Don't delay in following through. For God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. For it's better to say nothing than to make a promise and don't keep it. Wow. Don't let your mouth make you sin. Let me say that again, don't let your mouth make you sin, and don't defend yourself by telling this temple messenger that you prom- the promise you made was a mistake. That temple messenger in the Hebrew is angelic. it's this angelic term. it probably means an angel from above. Don't let that temple messenger uh, tell you may- tell that me- temple messenger that you made a mistake. That would make God angry, he says at the last verse, and he will wipe out everything that you have achieved. Have you ever seen someone or been in life where you kind of haven't followed through and didn't what you uh, did do what you said you were going to do, and all of a sudden, all your provisions and all your blessings and everything kind of just dwindles away? I think that's an issue that we really need to address in church moving forward. Here's what Moses writes in the Torah, uh for all of us it's not just for jewish relationships it's for all christianity and for all believers it says when you make a vow to the lord deuteronomy 23 21 when you make a vow to the lord your god be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promise for him for the lord demands you promptly fulfill all your vows when you make a vow to god you need to promptly fulfill it For the Lord demands, that word is strong. It's not, hey, when you get around to it, if you can do it in the next six weeks or six months or six years, that would be good. No, it's a demand and it's not even a command. It's God looking at you saying, how dare you say something to me and you not follow through promptly. And here's the last part that I've held out for a second. It says, or you will be guilty of sin. When you make a vow before God, promptly fill it. If not, you're actually guilty of sin. One of the most commonly overlooked and underappreciated sin is the brokenness of vows and promises. Ouch. I mean, I'm thinking about how many words I've said to God. The lights are flashing. Oh, Lord, don't give me a ticket or don't let me go to jail and I'll do this. I'll no longer lie. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop using. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll read your word. I'm gonna stop lying. You know, you get to a place and God needs to help and you start making all these idle promises. The Bible says it's better for you just to not say anything. Quit promising you're never gonna lust or 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 watch pornography or you're never gonna kind of flirt with someone at work when you know you're not supposed to. Man, breaking our vows is a huge sin, and we kind of let the enemy act like it's no big deal. What about your marriage? Honor, trust, cherish, till death do us part, love unconditionally. All those things that we said, maybe we should go look at our vows. Are we really doing those vows and are we really blessing our marriage? This is an interesting place for me because a lot of times, We don't realize how important our words are. I hear Jeff Barnett in my head. Our words are crucial to God. And here's what verse 7 says. Talk is cheap. Isn't that true? Talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Here's what Solomon's trying to tell the people that are reading this poetry. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. When you make a promise, you're allowing your flesh to sin if you don't follow through. Don't let your daydreaming bring you to a place of sin. A lot of times our head says, oh, I want to be in this country or this state or in this place. That's my dream. That daydreaming might lead you out of the will of God and into a place of sin. And the last one says, don't let your useless activities under the sun lead you into a lifestyle of sin thinking oh everybody's doing it, God's going to forgive me. That's just the wrong mindset. But no, there's three words that brings this whole message together. and in the book of Ecclesiastes, every so often he gives a foretaste or the answer, and here's what he says. Talk is cheap like daydreaming and other useless activities. Fear God instead. Fear God instead. Too often, we make these vain, useless promises because we don't fear God. If we make a promise to another human being or our boss or our best friend and we don't follow through, there's some sort of consequence. But a lot of times, we don't see the instant consequences with God. We need to learn to fear God instead. We didn't get a chance to read chapter three. We're trying to do just a survey of Ecclesiastes leading into Easter. But here's what chapter three says about fearing God. And I know that whatever God does is final. End of story, period. The buck stops here. Nothing can be added or taken away from what God does. God's purpose is that people should fear him. Everything he does is final. There's no kind of wavering. Nothing can be added or taken away. And in the end, it's fear God instead. Clark writes, a theologian from the, uh, you know, the 1800s. He says, he that fears God need fear nothing else. He that fears God need fear nothing else. May an upright soul say to Satan himself, I fear God, and because I fear him, I do not fear thee, thee being Satan. As you're communicating to Satan, God is my fear. Uh, I fear God and he is my Savior. I don't need to fear you and this life of, of meaningless under the sun that we see in Ecclesiastes. You know, as I was in my community group, This week, I was looking through some of the great stuff that Jeremy put on paper as we were discussing it. Some words really stood out to me, and I just kind of want to get your mind right. First of all, you've got to be in a community group. It's really, even for myself who gave a message, learned a lot about it, and it really kind of amplified being with 12 other people and going through the book of ecclesiastes but here's what it said and it really stuck to my my gut a little bit it says ecclesiastes is like john the baptist kind of book it's kind of the forerunner of life without god its function is not as a meal but it's as a bath too often we think oh the word of god it's feeding us but no this is a bath it's not nourishment it's a cleansing he writes it it it's repentance it's purging we need to detox We need to get away from this and do that juice cleanse or that Daniel diet or something to kind of cleanse us from this lifestyle. As we read this book, Ecclesiastes, we need to get scrubbed from the illusion and the sediment of ideas that are idolatrous, that are idolatry. We put things too high up on the shelf with God and he wants to clear that so that you can have a right relationship Those sickening feelings of the world need to be knocked down. Those ideas and preferences and mindsets that are destroying your relationship with God. Even if someone's telling you they're good, if it's not in the Bible and it's not being verified, be wary. The time is getting closer to Jesus coming back and there's going to be many teachers leading us astray. And the only teacher that's here to lead us correctly is God through Jesus through that Holy Spirit. Let me ask you some questions as we close. Is your spiritual life fruitful or fruitless? Meaningful or meaningless? Can you really look at your life and do an inventory and explore the meaningless things in your life today? One of the reasons that we're doing this as we head into Easter is kind of pulling apart the things that have become meaningless in our lives. We have a lot to grow through. I know I do. And if I do, I'm sure we all do. And we shouldn't be afraid to look at the meaningless things in our life. This book is one by one pulling the things that are meaningless and showing us that it's only about fearing God instead. So as we close today, what do you need to clean? Purge? Detox? Where do you need to repent? What's the meaningless things that are happening in your your life? And how can we be healed and right with God? Whatever you do, the best thing we can do right now is just turn it over, give it to God, and ask him to do a work in all of us. So let's just bow our heads and pray out of here. Father, we love you, and we ask in the name above all names that you help us repent and heal and change this uh, useless mindset that we have in this life that we think we can do everything apart from you, Lord. Lord, we repent of what we have done apart from you. And I ask that you show us all that's watching this, the good things that you have in our life and the things that we need to move away from. I pray right now, if someone's watching this and they want a fresh new life, they want an eternal life with Christ, all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you shall be saved. And what an amazing gift that is salvation and it grows from this day forth so if that's you just repeat after me a simple prayer father forgive me come into my heart and soul and be my lord and savior you died upon the cross for me and you rose again so that i can be in heaven with god forever we love you lord holy spirit take over our lives right now and lead us to a greater place in you Amen. We're so grateful that you joined us today. Go to the prayer card right now and and put in a prayer request. We want to pray for you. Do it online, do it uh, on the app or come in person and drop one in the box. We're so grateful that you joined us today. Hopefully you're getting ready for Easter and we're going to celebrate Easter together soon. God bless you. God is with you and God loves you. Go out and love the world one person at a time.